Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, good to see you. Good to see you, you, Chris. Chris. Hey, hey. Coming up, we'll talk with the Chief Operating Officer of Whole Foods. We'll take sides in the Southwest Airlines' Kevin Smith Smackdown, take issue with Comcast's new name, and as always, give you an inside look at the stocks that are on our radar. But we begin with the Fed's decision on Thursday to raise the discount rate by a quarter point, 2.75%. Now, guys, this is the rate the Fed charges banks that borrow from the Fed. So what does the hike mean for investors? James Earlier, we'll start with you. Chris, let me give you the official version. The discount window has long been the lender of last resort for banks, a sign of desperation. Traditionally, banks didn't use it much. That changed during the financial crisis because of some special terms. And now the Fed says it's not trying to do anything big here. It's just returning things to normal, raising the rate a little bit and shortening the repayment window. All right, here's the unofficial version. So, uh, James, is exactly right. It's a small incremental move, but the symbolism of it is absolutely huge. And in that sense, it's a a bit of a bold move. They're beginning to mop up liquidity and uh, so that the days of easy money uh, are are over, uh, despite the fact that small businesses and consumers are still having difficulty getting getting credit. So you've got double-digit unemployment, you've got a housing foreclosure crisis that's still underway, a meltdown in commercial real estate, and the Fed's choice, small though it is right now, is to err on the side of mopping up liquidity. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Although it does strengthen the dollar, which has pros and cons. Uh, for those traveling to Europe, yes. <laughs> All right. On Thursday, the government reported that the PPI, the Producer Price Index in January, increased by 1.4%, which was higher than expected. When you take out food and energy prices, the core PPI still increased 0.3%. Seth, let's start with what do these numbers tell us and why the fuss over PPI when we've got the CPI? Well, CPI gets all the headline news, but that really tells you something you you usually know, which is how much you've been paying for stuff. The PPI, core PPI especially, in addition to being a lot more fun to say, gives you a bit of a (laughs) glimpse perhaps into the future because this is the price that wholesalers, uh, others further back in, in, in the pipeline are paying, and so it suggests what you might be paying for products coming forward. Now, this report, I think, is mixed. There's going to be a little bit of the rampant fear pounding the table. Look at, we've got inflation. We have to stop with the stimulus. But if you look at these numbers, if you take out food and fuel, okay, a 0.3% rise, it might be triple the 0.1% rise that economists <laughs> had predicted, but it's still relatively tame. The thing I would like to point out, however, is that Unfortunately, minimum wage schlubs like those of us in this room. Minimum wage plus tips for me, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> we, speak for yourself. We, we actually have to pay for things like food and fuel. Exactly. So this does matter. And I think this is going to, if this continues, it's going to feel a little bit like stagflation for a lot of people in this country. And that won't be a good thing. Yeah, uh, core PPI is, is bogus. I mean, you strip out energy and food costs, which are, of course, volatile, which is why they strip them out. And, and, and the figure is, is arbitrary. Strip out retail sales and services, and you know, inflation was zero. The, 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 <laughs> You're actually paying for your energy costs and, and your food costs, and uh, that's not a good thing. If inflation rises on rising commodity costs, that's bad. If it rises on consumer demand increasing, that would be great. That's not happening. Well, there's, there's still demand in the picture, even if for commodity costs. I mean, the way I think about it, inflation is like maybe like burping after a big meal. At least she has something to eat, right? So it's <laughs> sort of the aftershock, but there's demand still there. What does this mean 
for investors who are who are looking at these numbers? What's the takeaway? Well, there? you know, those companies for whom uh, uh, energy is an input cost, uh, which would be all of them, but uh, on a relative scale, some are affected more than others. You know, they are disadvantaged by that. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you are a commodity producer and prices are higher, you're going to enjoy a benefit from that. And if you are uh, investing in companies that are looking to sell stuff to people besides food and fuel, you might want to keep in mind that uh, labor picture looking a little cloudy, wages stagnating. These people are going to have to choose at some point. Are they buying Assassin's Creed 2? Or are they going to feed their family and keep them warm? In my house, we went with the video games. <laughs> but, but other, of dilemma. Other people <laughs> might go the other direction. The economic stimulus celebrated its first birthday this week, and the $862 billion question is, has it been a success? Shannon, what do you think? Well, it clearly has been a a success, notwithstanding the the barrage of news stories suggesting otherwise. And it's been a success in the most no-brainer of ways. Lo and behold, if the government spends a lot of money when consumers aren't able to spend a lot of money, uh, the economy is stimulated because folks, uh, in in two main ways, most of the aid went to states who were otherwise not going to be able to continue to pay firefighters, teachers, and healthcare workers. Well, they got paid and they they spent the the money on goods and services, and that helped to stimulate the economy. The other piece of it is there was a break in the tax code for businesses to uh, ramp up capital spending. That happened dramatically in the fourth quarter of last year. You know, independent of that tax uh, code stimulus, it remains to be seen if business spending is going to be as resilient as it was. I'm not a political guy, Chris, you know, so I'll take that out. Just mathematically, though, Obama saying that the stimulus has caused all the benefits we're seeing is kind of like an office of linemen saying that he won a football game. I mean, he may have been, and that's not bad, he may have been a contributor, but we've had a lot of other things going on. We've had well, 287 out of the 787 billion stimulus has been spent proper. Um, for perspective, the AIG bailout alone was 180 billion. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have cost at least 100 billion. And according to CNN, automaker bailout could now be 130 billion total. So, so nobody wants to come out and say that AIG bailout is what saved the economy. <laughs> well, there's so many other things that I would say even the biggest one is, is simply just the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC acting to restore stability to the financial markets. I'm not, I mean, certainly the stimulus helped, but there's so many other things, it's, it's hard to take credit. Seth, how are you measuring the success here? There, there's something pretty important that I think the media I- is ignoring here, which is that the stimulus package also keeps away tigers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't see any tigers around here. Do oh, you? In the endless series Tiger of head fakes. This is, this, is, <laughs> this, this is head fake after that, head fake after head fake. That's a great fake. stolen Simpsons joke. It, I agree that there's probably some credit, but I, I will probably always disagree with agree the, on the, on the, on the on extent on the extent to which, which it mattered. And in an a lot of ways, it is unknowable. And so for uh. for Obama and his folks who've been for a long time kind of creating these new non, uh, non-existent or pr- previously non-existent measures like jobs saved, these are... These are these are political. I mean, it's propaganda. The thing is, this obviously there are other inputs into uh, economic stimulus. Business has not been one. Dramatic cost reductions, including massive layoffs, of course, and they've not been stimulating the economy. The government was the the stimulator of first resort in this case, and things could have been done uh, better. But that, like I was saying, makes perfection the enemy of good, and it's just carping to to, uh, you know say that the stimulus didn't do what it was supposed to do because they're overreaching and and representing what it did. I didn't say that it didn't do anything. I just said they're overreaching, and you need to be careful. $287 billion, that's not a lot of money. 
Pers- personally, I, I'm with Seth. I'm fired up that there are no Tigers in the studio. <laughs> Let's move on to earnings news this week. Hewlett-Packard reported better-than-expected earnings thanks to a pickup in business and consumer spending. Shannon, how did it look to you? Uh, it was a great earnings report for uh, uh, HP, so that the revenue was up 5% year-over-year, even after adjusting for favorable currency translation. Uh, operating margin also rose, but not as substantially, and that was helped uh, by cost reductions. You can't cost-cut your way to profitability forever, but uh, on both the consumer side and the business side, HP had a, a very strong quarter. You know, the computer industry is a, a cyclical industry, and if we really are in the midst of a real deal economic re- recovery, I would expect that pattern to continue. If not, if the the tax code uh, stimulus that helped businesses to feel good about spending uh, during the, the, the quarter uh, evaporates and is not replaced, you know, HP looks more than fully valued to a cheapskate like me. All right. Abercrombie and Fitch's fourth quarter profit fell 32%, and yet somehow the retailers still beat expectations. Seth, you're our resident retail guru. What's the story with Abercrombie? Uh, you know, you can get the entire story on Abercrombie. I'm going to hold my computer screen up to the microphone for everybody out there to see. <laughs> the investor relations page at Abercrombie has these two shirtless dudes in written in red, fierce, the word fierce underneath. And this explains Abercrombie's problem. They are completely delusional. They are That's doing, on the investor relations page? That's on the investor abs, relations though. page. Yeah, those guys have great abs. These are the kind of abs you might find in the men of Motley Fool Money calendar. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, it's awful. And they are, I listened to a little bit, or I, I read a little bit of the conference call. They're delusional. They, they talk about protecting their brands, which is uh, stupid Wall Street speak for not dropping prices even though you should. Same store sales decrease 8% at Abercrombie and Fitch, decrease 11% at Abercrombie Kids, decrease, nine, decrease 19% at Hollister, which is, which is one of their most popular brands, one of the most popular teen brands. The reason is that Abercrombie's stuff costs a lot and I think they are now at the point where they've become uncool because in the past in in the recent past mom and dad were withdrawing money from the house as an ATM handed it to the kids they were buying $90 shirts they're not doing that anymore and I don't think that's going to get cool in the near future yeah, I but think but they're in real it, trouble it, is Abercrombie would they be smart to, com- to compete on price I mean really what do they have I in, don't in, think in, they in can team, in and teen retail in teen retail it's all kind of voodoo right you sort of uh, uh, imbue your brand with a sort yeah. of mystique and then if that goes away and it would you don't if have they it. Yeah. On price. And, and it really does uh, the kids have spoken it, it's pretty much the same thing as you can get Aeropost, at Aeropostal or at American Eagle or at other knockoffs. And so I think they're in big trouble. Do you still make those short shorts? <laughs> for, for guys, I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I hope so. I can't believe a cheapskate like you, Seth, is complaining about uh, the fact that their, their investor relations website's not been updated. I mean, they're passing along those those savings to uh, shareholders yeah, and perhaps no, to consumers as it's, well. I, th- I'm sure that is updated. It's just that they don't realize how tired their bare-chested dudes act is. And I think I think they're going to go the way the gap. Fiercely banal. I don't know about you guys, but after the show, I'm going to the investor relations page of Playboy. (laughs) Coming up, we're going to dig into an international financial scandal that will change the way you eat. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill in the studio here with Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, time for some quick takes. Microsoft introduced its Windows Phone 7 this week. Seth, going to be a game changer? 
I think it will be. Uh, it's going to get a lot of laughs uh, at first, <laughs> but it it actually looks really cool. They've inter- it's really hard to talk about it without people seeing it. So go find some 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 web video of it if you can. It takes uh, what are some pretty well thought on interesting and very forward looking uh, OS changes from the Zune HD of all places, and wraps them up in a phone that that steps far in advance of the current Microsoft phone operating system, which is basically like small windows and really sucks. So if they get developers on board, I think they're going to win back people like me who might otherwise go to an iPhone or the Google phone. Filmmaker Kevin Smith squared off with Southwest Airlines this week. Smith is a rather large man. He bought two tickets for a Southwest flight, tried to fly standby on an earlier flight, but there was only one seat and Southwest kicked him off the plane because Southwest employees said his size infringed upon the space of the person sitting next to him. Smith proceeded to tweet about it. Southwest later apologized, gave him a voucher. Tweet? Uh, He had a fit. You know what infringed? (laughs) What infringed on my person was that Jersey Girl movie. What a lousy one that was. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that the reason he was thrown off is because the pilot paid full price to see Zach and Miri make a porno. Which wasn't bad. It was certainly better than Jersey Girl. (laughs) Was it the guy? Was he... Was that he in this Kevin movie? Smith? Kevin Smith okay. was the okay. director, yeah. Gotcha, okay. I mean, who knew he was such a big guy? I mean, so I, I mostly remember him from his days in the uh, the Clerks movies, the Silent sure. Bob. He was always in a trench coat, and you really couldn't see how big he was. But maybe Kevin Smith has fallen on, on hard times. What's he doing flying Southwest? Yeah, that, that was that was my first question. I, I've i never thought Kevin Smith lived up to his hype, and I find him pretty <laughs> or, or his girth. Yeah, or his girth. <laughs> I find him pretty annoy- annoying, but I'm going to have to to go the other way here, even though I have a rant about Kevin Smith and what a big crybaby he is, that the real criminals here are the jerks running the airlines. This is a time when Americans are getting bigger. They keep shrinking the seats, and even I don't fit into these seats. I weigh and a you buck, weigh like a buck twenty. I weigh a buck wet. sixty, yeah. and I don't fit in the seats. I barely fit in them widthwise. Certainly not lengthwise. And this is—it's not only a joke, but I mean, an, an airplane ride almost killed me because I got a leg clot that nearly like ended my life. So this is no joke. I think that they should take. I don't know how the guys at Southwest fly, but I think. The, the jackasses who run the airlines should be required to do all their traveling and coach and sit next to Kevin Smith. Let's move on. In France, a dozen wine producers and traders were found guilty of having supplied E&J Gallo, an American trader, with mislabeled Pinot Noir wines. In 2008, French Customs found that during a three-year period, some 13.5 million liters of mislabeled wine had been sold to Gallo. So, Seth, they're using a less expensive grape, slapping a Pinot Noir label on it, and selling it for twice the normal price. Hey, forget Ponzi schemes. This is an outrage. This is an outrage. The The good news is that there isn't a, sinker, a single uh, drinker of Gallo wine who can tell the difference. So. <laughs> and they that's should have not, never said anything. No one would know. And, that, and that's not just a bust on Gallo or Gallo drinkers. Actually, I, I like to drink wine, and I like to drink some better wine. You just like to drink. but I, Yeah, but but studies have shown that... that the people who claim to be experts on wine cannot discern nearly as many separate little flavors as they think. And the wine producers, once in a while, they'll go to a contest and they'll introduce the same exact wine in a couple of different bottles just to see what the judges say. And the judges will routinely say one is great and the other is undrinkable. It's it's all a sham. Now, fraud is still fraud, even if it's based 
on uh, on complete snobbery. I'll bet you a box of wine. I can tell the difference. <laughs> I don't drink. Well, and, and, and there's a place in France where people actually prefer box wine. I, I was there about 10 years ago, and that's the, you, you would go, and you were you know the American tourist, and you'd buy your bottles and your baguette and go home. And then here would come the uh, the, the locals with big boxes and hoses, mm-hmm. and they just plug them in and uh, take it home in a box. The big it, in England, too. And I, it keep, Well, it keeps better yeah. because the, there's no air on top of it after it gets pulled out. The Italians keep their table wine that way, too. It, 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 too. it makes sense to me. And, and, and now, of course, uh, the screw top has been perfected apparently the cork industry is going to go away and then good riddance. Yeah, sell your shares of cork industries. <laughs> cork co. And finally, Comcast is giving itself a makeover. The company is rebranding its TV, internet, and telephone services as, wait for it, Xfinity. The corporate name uh, will still be Comcast. Guys, I, I, I think I actually watched an Xfinity uh, movie uh, one night in my hotel room on one of those pay-per-view <laughs> channels. A mistake, right? Yeah, well, they, yeah. They, they, they determined that I-Infinity wouldn't work, so they, they went for Xfinity. I mean, they're taking a lot. In all seriousness, Comcast has taken some shots, and rightly so. It's, it's, it seems like a, a somewhat absurd name, but let's let's look back. Philip Morris was taking shots for changing their name to Altria. That Arthur Anderson, terrible. when they changed to Accenture, but now... It, this, it, is it, the, it, this is the worst, though. Come on. No, the, I think the worst, actually, was when Pricewaterhouse Consulting tried to change their name to Monday. And they quickly changed back. It was just <laughs> they like did. A dumb, they they did. literally changed their name to Monday because you're like ready to work on Monday, oh, ready to go wow. consult. Right? Nobody likes Monday. That's stupid. not a made up. That's not a made up word. At least uh, usually when they try to, there's consultancies that do this. They try to make up these words and 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 they always try to do. They always try to have one syllable that sounds like action and aggressive. So there's your X, and they have try to have another syllable that's softer and suggests like broad horizons. And there's your affinity. But this is just so blatant. I mean, this is straight out of The Simpsons or The Onion. I swear the, the guys who did this were probably first years, and I think they were stoned when they did it, and they did it the night before it was due. All right, exit question. There's uh, an old saw that I think we all know about, that your porn star name is actually the name of your first childhood pet followed by the name of the street that you grew up on. So with that in mind, and in the spirit of Comcast rebranding, let's go around and share our Xfinity names. Uh, Matt Greer, our producer, we'll start with you. Uh, that would be Bo Camelot. Bo Camelot, that's nice. solid. That's solid. Uh, Seth? Butch Knob Hill. That's also solid. James? Uh, Jesse Foxtail. Wow. <laughs> These are some strong names ding, here. Ding, Shannon? Ding. Can we get the ding ding? Lady Route 1. Lady Route 1. Okay. Whoa, that's the dirtiest one of all. You know what? My, I, I did not have a, a pet growing up, so mine is just my street name. It's just Dalton. Dalton. <laughs> also good. That's it. Yep. Steve Broido? Uh, Cato Northwoods. Kato oh, oh, that's a celebrity name he, right there. He, he was the, solid. He Wait. was the uh, Canadian star. No, no, he lived out back of uh, OJ's house, right? Who figured out this? Because this does really work incredibly well. All right, drop us an email at motleyfoolmoney at fool.com if you want to share your Xfinity name, if you have any advice for Southwest Airlines, Kevin Smith. We want to hear from you. Drop us a note at motleyfoolmoney at fool.com. Guys, we'll be back later to talk about the stocks that are on their radar. But coming up after the break, Whole Foods COO Walter Robb says we need to change the way we do business. We'll talk to him about that and get his thoughts on the future of Whole Foods. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Walter Robb started working for Whole Foods in 1991 when he opened and operated a single store in Mill Valley, California. Today, he's the chief operating officer and co-president of the entire company, which has 53,000 employees, 289 locations across America, as well as a few in Canada and the UK. And he joins me in studio now. Walter, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Right, good. We're doing great. We had a wonderful week this week. I was going to say, let's start by talking about your earnings. Uh, Whole Foods reported earnings this week. Mm-hmm. Um, d- definitely had a good quarter. Uh, the share price got a nice boost. Um, th- what do you think was the biggest contributor to that? Uh, yeah, I think the uh, obviously the street liked what we had to say, but I think I think probably the biggest contributor was the the the, the sense of the, the sales momentum, the feeling that the the sales that were that we reported were significantly. Uh, more than what they expected, and um, uh, both on a one-year and a two-year stack basis. So uh, I think that surprised folks that uh, we had that sort of momentum at this point. And uh, I think the rest of the stuff, sort of the the rest of the P and L went along with it. But the sales were really strong. Now, most of your locations are here in the U.S., but you do have a few, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned, in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of your stores in London uh, had uh, great growth. Uh, I think double-digit comps. Um, is that, uh, I'm sure that's encouraging. I guess my question is, how encouraging is that uh, in terms of the extent to which you're looking at further international expansion? Well, you know, the, I think the most encouraging thing about the sales was the strength of this uh, quarter and, and the last couple quarters really end-to-end, country-to-country. And, and it really, we saw it across the board in all stores and all departments. We couldn't have generated that sort of a number without... Uh, it being that broad base. But in the UK specifically, where we have, as you know, struggled for a couple of years to kind of uh, find our feet, we have a wonderful new leader over there, uh, Jeff Turnus, who's uh, living in London now, is actually kind of going Euro. His hair's kind of looking <laughs> like a beetle. And uh, we, we sometimes don't recognize him. But I think we, we, we you know, I think we're just, we just, we just kind of learned some lessons. I think we're really got our feet on the ground there. And we have, while we're still not making money over there, uh, we have, we have definitely crossed a corner, you know, crossed over to where we've got some real sales momentum. And Canada, actually, we've been in Canada over five years now, both in Vancouver and Toronto. And I have to tell you, I am so impressed with that country. And I'm so convinced that we're going to put uh, substantially more investment in that country uh, and, and look at additional cities as well. Uh, Whole Foods has certainly been the leader in the organic food movement. But let's face it, there are others that are catching up and, and certainly catching on. Kroger's, Safeway, even Walmart um, adding organic. Uh, one of the things that makes those stores different is they can, li- they can be one-stop shops. They can you know offer people... Um, everything from organic food to Crest toothpaste and Doritos, that sort of thing. Um, what holds Whole Foods back from going one extra step in that direction and being more of a one-stop shop? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I would argue that we probably, I, th- I would argue that we are a one-stop shop for, for the most part, but uh, I think, uh, I would say it like this, we've got the highest set of quality standards in the supermarket industry in the United States, and they continue to evolve. And so we have, you know, our, our purpose is not to be all things to all people, but rather to be really good at the things that we do offer. And uh, that's based on the standards that we've set. So 
I, I recognize that at times perhaps we may not get all of everybody's basket, but I think that by the the down the flip side of that is by keeping our focus really clear and sharp. I think customers know what we stand for and they appreciate what we stand for and what we offer. And uh, so it actually we have an opportunity in that to continue to get more of uh, customers' basket business uh, in that because we're not not a one-stop shop for some people. But I think the, the, the positive trade-off is just being very clear about what we sell, and, uh, and, and we don't sell everything. So You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Walter Robb, the COO and co-president of Whole Foods. Uh, in addition to being at Whole Foods for a long time, you're someone who's, uh, for a long time, has really had a passion in um, healthy eating, healthy living. Um, where does that come from? Is that from your childhood? Is that something instilled by your parents, or did you learn it somewhere else uh, along the way? You know what happened is actually uh, after college, looking for kind of a direction. Uh, I think reading uh, some some uh, Wendell Berry, who wrote a book called Unsettling of America, 40 years ago, if you can believe it, and uh, Francis Mortlepay died for a small planet, and some of those, and E. F. Schumacher, who's a British economist for the Coal Board, wrote a book called uh, uh, Small Is Beautiful, and I think. You know, as every young person does getting out of school, they're they're reading, they're thinking, they're trying to figure out where am I going to go with my life and looking for a place to contribute. And that all landed for me in the idea of a, of a natural food store. But I'm assuming you have an answer to this next question. What is your least favorite vegetable? You know, it's okra. Really? It is. There's no way. Even if I fried up some okra, there's it's not don't, doing I it don't think you. I could go there with you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Mackey has said, and you've agreed, that uh, we need to rethink the purpose of business. Um, how does business need to change, in your opinion? I think business needs to discover its deeper reason for being. And obviously, we have lots of news stories today about uh, uh, where business has fallen short in terms of ethical conduct or in terms of decision-making uh, with respect to the stakeholders. But I, I think it's really about uh, why are you in business and how does that reflect what you're here to do, what your deeper purpose is. And I think I think that I would say the purpose and I would also say uh, a, a broader description, a broader array of consideration of all the stakeholders that are they're in the success of the business. So, for example, um, in Whole Foods, that means we've got our customers, our team members, our stockholders, the environment, our community stakeholder, our investors, our, um, our vendors, those are all participants in our, in our business. And I think good decision making balances the needs and interests of all of those stakeholders. So I think it's purpose and I think it's a, a, uh, a more ecological way of thinking about uh, the business. Jim Senegal, the CEO of Costco, was here a few months back and one of the things we talked about was um, he's someone who goes into a lot of stores, his own stores, but also competitors. And we talked about sort of getting a sense of how a store is doing. When you go into a Whole Foods or a Kroger's, a Safeway, what are you looking for that'll give you a sense of how that store is performing? Well, after some 30 years doing this, it's really uh, a lot of it's a feel. Mm-hmm. You know, what does what's the environment feel like? So you start with the energy of team members, uh, the morale, uh, the sort of uh, how are the customers, you know, it's sort of a, a perception thing that you can pick up after years of doing that. I'm sure Jim can do the same thing. And by the way, I have a great deal of respect for him. Um, and, and so, you know, it's sort of if you think about a store as a as sort of an organism, mm-hmm. as a living organism, and, uh, you know, how is that being expressed? How is that thing feeling? So after, after you tap into that, then you're going to look at uh, you know, the various things like the merchandising, the presentation, the programs, those sorts of things. But the most important of all is the sort of esprit of the space and uh, how well it's expressing uh, the feeling of the company. Um, when you look at the next 
10, 20, 30 years. Uh, what do you think is the biggest opportunity? And what do you think is the, or who is the biggest challenge? You know, I think the opportunity is to, I think we're, we're still so, you know, in the, in the world of supermarkets, we're still incredibly small. We have less than 300 stores across the country. And so we really, as being 30 years old, we're, we have a lot more uh, market share than we have mind share even at this mm-hmm. point. And I think, uh, and I say that the, the those that are in the um, unhealthy eating space, are, there's much, it's a much larger space than those that are in the healthy eating space. So I think we have the opportunity to continue our, our mission of bringing healthy foods to the world and grow the number of stores and grow the number of countries in which we're doing business. I, I see nothing but tremendous upside for Whole Foods. And I think we've just really begun to tap um, our deeper, the deeper purpose that we have as a company. Um, you mentioned the conscious capitalism that we've been doing mm-hmm. some talking about with other companies. And I, I think we're st- we just continue to find more ways in which I think we can contribute. We're working right now on uh, the humane standards for meat We've been working on sustainable seafood standards. Um, there's lots of areas about uh, the food supply and, and about how companies function that we can continue to uh, participate in. And in terms of the challenge, is there is there a company that keeps you up at night? It's not. It's you know the challenge. The challenge actually is a company gets larger. Is is to how it, for me the one that I worry about at night, which is is how do we keep our culture vibrant? Because I I believe the secret sauce of Whole Foods, and I believe of most successful companies, if you dug in, would be the culture of the company. It's the sort of fluid that's in the petri dish in which all the action happens. And so I think the challenge is how do we continue to, now that we have, uh, we're over 8 billion in sales and 56,000 team members, is how do we continue to make that experience as fresh and vibrant for somebody coming to work now who's perhaps was there you know, at the beginning. In terms of the competitors, I think um, there's no one exactly like us, but there's certainly lots of people that are selling the, the products. And so I, I think you just keep, uh, there's no one that I'm, you know, that I'm, I'm losing sleep about at night, but there's everybody that I'm watching. And I think we're all watching and learning from those. But I think really, if we, uh, if we stay focused, we're going to continue to create our own space in the marketplace. Um, just because we talked about okra, what's your favorite vegetable? I got I to gotta give you that Vegetable chance. or fruit? Vegetable. I want fruit. Oh, f- fruit. My favorite is. fruit is is uh, apricots, and you know, I tell you, an apricot only comes out five weeks a year. It's actually a lot of the growers are going to pluots, and which is not a true apricot. But an apricot is really only apricot. Well, I'm sorry, a pluot. A pluot is a plum and an apricot crossed. I do, I, okay. It's a little I'm, more. I'm, it's I'm a little clearly more, learning here. <laughs> it's a little more. Yeah, it may be a very small detail, but it's on, a very, on, just by way of comparison. On last week's show, I had uh, never heard of Verner's ginger ale. So you know, this will be live this, and learn. Live and learn. So a pluot is a little more shelf ready, but an apricot in its finest form, mm. it has this wonderful combination on the front end of being very sweet and delicious, and on the back end is sort of gets you at the back of your throat. It's a truly a delicious fruit, and uh, I think the fact that it's seasonal and you, you get it at a certain time of year and then you're out uh, contributes to the appeal. In terms of the vegetable, I really like uh, carrots. So you can you know, have them raw, you can cook them, you can do any number of things, you can shred them. Um, so that's my favorite vegetable. Walter Robb is the COO and co-president of Whole Foods. Thanks for stopping by Full HQ. It's been a pleasure, Chris. Take good care. Broccoli. I really dig it, Steve. Broccoli. Broccoli. Just plain with cheese or cream. Cheese cream. Cheese cream. I like to eat it with my mouth. It tastes so good. I like to eat it with my mouth. 
It's my favorite food. Coming up, we'll get to your emails and give you an inside look at the stocks that are on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me are a trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. And guys, it's time to dip into the full mailbag. Steve Broido, what do you got for us this week? Well, Chris, Kevin from Georgia wants us to mix it up a bit more. He writes, I'm a little tired of always hearing about Apple or Google. What about other sectors of the U.S. economy? How about the manufacturing sector? If the jobs don't come from there, then where? I've been saying for years companies have been diverting production overseas not because they were going bankrupt manufacturing in the U.S., but for pure greed. In real life, only some people can add value through knowledge. 80% of the people don't want that kind of work. They want to get it done and go home. Without them, nobody will have money for Apple's products. Yeah, it's a fair point, particularly the emphasis on uh, the manufacturing sector of the economy, which has been uh, uh, resilient over the last six months. But we're not a manufacturing economy yeah, anymore. I don't the, think that we will greed, be into the future. Yeah, the greed thing is is true. I mean, whether you call it greed or just uh, profit motive and working hard for shareholders, yeah. which, which include people who just have regular pensions, you have to get your manufacturing done where you can get the product made the best at the cheapest prices. And in the U.S., we can manufacture many things better than other people can at the right prices, certain specialized equipment, specialized machinery, big tractors, and other things. But the, the vast majority of stuff that needs to get made in the world is, is better off being made in places, unfortunately, where people are paid less and where you can dump as much kind of pollution as you want. <laughs> it, it, by the numbers, only 10% of U.S. jobs are in manufacturing. But I actually agree with Kevin in that it's not so much just a show, just people in general tend to focus on Apple and Google. Uh, we just know this from, from studies. Uh, and investors like those stocks, but the boring infrastructure stocks are the ones I like. I'm the dividend guys, so, so I'm a little bit biased. They tend to be solid investments, a lot less vulnerable to speculation. You know, these are the pipelines, uh, these are electric utilities, things like that. These are uh, nuts and bolts kind of companies, and I certainly like them. And we threw out a Google story today anyway. <laughs> got rid of it. Cut it. <laughs> Steve, what else you got? And speaking of Apple, sorry Kevin from Georgia, Ian weighed in on the iPad. The most important thing about the iPad is not the iPad at all, but the App Store. The only hurdle on the road to total domination is whether developers will write applications for it. In reality, this will not be a problem since there's already hundreds of thousands of iPhone apps available that will work out of the box. What else you got, Steve? And Chris, we got a number of responses to your comments last week questioning the existence of Werner's ginger ale. Uh Uh-oh. Rick writes, Werner's was made in Detroit for years. It does exist. In fact, I am drinking one at this moment. Tina writes that she's a Verner's fan but prefers Reed's Extra Ginger Ale. And Chris from Michigan offers this cautionary advice. Verner's is a bit spicier than Canada Dry, so much so that if you breathe at the wrong time through your mouth with a beverage too close to your mouth, it will make you cough. Take it easy out there, Chris. And it's a risk well worth taking. I'm so gratified that uh, there are lots of other Verners fans out there. Frankly, I'll, I'll, you can believe the hype and I'll dial up the hype. It, not only is it my, my favorite beverage from my, my childhood, my misspent youth, it makes every other ginger, ginger ale taste like carbonated backwash. 
I, I guess I have Take to. Take that, Kelly. I, I, I will eat some humble pie and I will wash it down with a Verner's. The weird thing is, they seem to have just trucked this stuff from Michigan to Florida and not draw, stopped anywhere in between to drop it off. Wasn't I, Smoking the Bandit about that? I think it was. I'm looking for some now around Alexandria. You need to find it and review it, I think. All right. If you have a comment about anything you've heard on the show, drop us a note at Motley Fool Money at fool.com. All right, guys, it's that time again. Time to hear about the stocks that are on your radar. Shannon Zimmerman, we'll start with you. All right, so I'm looking at energy companies right now, particularly those with a substantial natural uh, gas exposure, and Chesapeake uh, is on my radar. Natural gas levels remain high. They're about 3% higher than they have been over the last five years on average. And the futures market still has natural gas priced below the cost of uh, new production. And that eventually is going to lead to a drawdown of those uh, supplies, which should put the supply-demand uh, curve back in balance, if you could balance a curve. When that happens, uh, Chesapeake will benefit, but when that happens is anyone's guess. You know, It's uh, dependent on weather, and on whether or not new exploration is going to find uh, supplies that will maybe permanently lower the cost of the commodity. And the ticker one more time? Uh, CHK. James Early? Chris, Obama is tripling loan guarantees to build nuclear power plants. In the first round, looks like it's coming out. $8.7 billion in loan guarantees have been given to Southern Company. The ticker there is SO. This is a core stock in my Income Investor newsletter. It's a utility. So that that's one obvious candidate. There's a dark horse candidate that I like too, which is Exelon, which actually got uh, squelched out, I guess, of the first round. They're the I think the the, the leader in, in nuclear in the U.S. with about 20% of our capacity. I think it's likely they'll get something eventually. The ticker there is EXC. It's a Chicago-based company with a 4.8% yield. Seth Jason. Did I a while ago say that people needed to watch out for restaurant stocks because a lot of them you were did. a little bit priced? Or am I imagining? Are that? you about to contradict yourself? No, I'm going to say what a what a smart thing to have said <laughs> because one of our favorite restaurants uh, at Hidden Gems and in the Motley Fool uh, world or universe is Buffalo Wild Wings. Looked really expensive for a while. I may have even have said that in particular on the show. And this week came out with uh, earnings. And guess what? When your revenue goes up in the 20% range, but you only go from 43 cents a share last year to 46 cents this year, investors get kind of scared and they run. So the stock dropped about 15%. Still not cheap enough yet, but I think the broader lesson, aside from wait a little bit on Buffalo Wild Wings, is if you're into restaurant stocks, and I've looked at a few, a lot of them are pricing in a recovery that I think is not only not likely, but is, but is absolutely already, be shown, already shown to not be happening. If you look at restaurant sales, things just aren't that great. And so if consumers aren't willing to spend a lot of these restaurant stock valuations are going to come back, and not just Buffalo Wild Wings. And the ticker symbol? B-W-L-D. A question about that. Bewold. So, so in another sign of a world gone mad, is it still the case that chicken wings are more expensive than chicken breasts? I haven't looked at that number. But that was that's a major input cost, obviously, for, for Yeah, but chicken wings have been volatile, and when they go up, they go up. But you, yeah, chicken wings used to be free, and some people have suggested, uh, at least on our Hidden Gems boards, that Buffalo Wild Wings may be a victim of its own success in a way in, in making wings a little more popular so that there's more demand and the price goes up. Yep, craziness. Okay, Butch Knob Hill, Jesse Foxtail, Lady Route One, thanks for being here, guys. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Next oh. week, more companies reporting earnings, including DreamWorks Animation, Office Depot, Target, and more. Thanks to our special guest this week, Walter Robb, the COO of Whole Foods. And if you missed any part of the show, you can find it at our website, motleyfoolmoney.com. You can also get a copy of our free report, The Motley Fool's Top Stock for 2010. All that and more at motleyfoolmoney.com. Our engineer is Cato Northwoods. Our producer is Bo Camelot. And I'm your host, Dalton. Thanks for listening this week. We'll see you next time on Motley Fool Money. <laughs> <laughs>